We speak this morning about living out the welcome of Jesus. This is the second of a three-part series on the welcome of Jesus. Last week we talked about what it means to actually respond to that welcome of Jesus who says, Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Next week we're going to talk about unleashing that welcome of Jesus in our city, in our world. This week, we're going to talk about what it means to actually live out that welcome of Jesus. We're going to look at uh, the first epistle of Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, the first eight verses. Uh, Follow along as I read the very words of our Savior through his apostle Peter. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be Put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. What does it mean to live out the welcome of Jesus? To live out the welcome of Jesus firstly means learning to bring everything to Jesus. Bringing everything to Jesus means approaching his person continually. It's in verse 4, Peter writes, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, the living stone. You know, sometimes we can sound like Christianity is, is sort of a doctrinal system with an ethical system attached. Like it's a philosophy in the world of ideas with some behavior implications off to the side. It's it's what's true and it's what to do. Like it's some set of propositional truths sitting on a shelf somewhere like it's a philosophy. But friends, Christianity is a person. It revolves around him. His name is Jesus. There's a lot of theology that can help you know him, but it can never replace him because all of it is always pointing outside of yourself to Jesus, to his person, to come to him, not just once, but continually as a, as a matter of your lifestyle, continually coming to Jesus, constantly moving to wherever he is to live out that welcome of Jesus is to follow him wherever he goes as you come to him 
the living stone, that is Jesus. He's welcoming you continually, moment by moment, calling you to come into his embrace and to hand everything over to him. It means approaching his person continually. And this means prioritizing the means of grace over soccer or Netflix or or yoga. And in verse 2 he says this, Peter writes, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. we got a picture here. This is is baby Greg, circa 1972. And what you see about baby Greg is, uh, well, actually, what you don't see about baby Greg is that I was born with a health condition. I had an allergy to my mother's milk. I would get black eyes. I would get a rash under my nose. I would have trouble breathing. I would be sick all the time. I wouldn't want to eat. I couldn't eat. I, I, and there was something wrong, and my mother knew it. She took me to the doctor, and, and in an earlier age, I would have been diagnosed as, as, as that, that dreadful category of failure to thrive, that child that just never gets nourishment, never gets healthy, never grows, won't eat enough, is always sickly and ultimately dies. Thankfully, there was something by 1972 called soy lac. I hear it was absolutely disgusting and it smelled bad, but it was something that my mother was able to mix up and give me that didn't have any milk products in it so that I could actually live. But friends, milk for a newborn is nourishment. You can, you can give a newborn all sorts of food. You can, you can take a, a, you know, a USDA prime porterhouse steak, medium rare, with a big slab of garlic steak butter on top, and you can throw it into the crib and say, hey, Junior, eat your steak. You, know, you can give your kid all sorts of stuff, all sorts of stuff you can throw at him to eat. But you know what? It's, it's not going to nourish him. He can't eat that. There's only one thing that's going to give a newborn the calories necessary to live and to grow and to thrive and to become strong. And that one thing that is absolutely necessary without which that child will perish is what? It's milk. Like newborn babies, Peter writes. Inspired by the Spirit of God, he commands us. Like newborn babies, I want you to crave spiritual milk. That milk is the word of God. It's the gospel of Jesus. Spoken of through the prophets in, in, in the 66 books that we call the Bible. The Hebrew scriptures, the Greek scriptures, always and only pointing us outside of ourselves to Jesus, our Savior, and our faithful Savior, Covenant God. This message of the gospel that Jesus dies for sinners like us so that we might live. It's what theologians call the outward and ordinary means of grace. The word of God, the sacraments, prayer, the very things by which the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And if you're going to crave spiritual milk, friends, it means gathering with God's people and gathering with God in private to be nourished with his word and collectively with his people to be nourished with the sacrament. See, there are all sorts of things that you can stuff your life with. The cars and the clothes and the relationships and the apps and the phones and all of the things that keep you busy night and day, constantly going, constantly spinning your wills, all sorts of things you can fill your life with. 
but they can't nourish your soul. Do you want to be more like Jesus? Make it your aim to be with Jesus, like newborn babies, every single day and every single week together. Crave pure spiritual milk, bringing everything in your life always to Jesus. You know, I, I talk with a lot of other pastors, and, and they've all noticed the same shift over the last decade in our churches from committed worshipers to what I can only call casual worshipers. One pastor friend of mine out west was scratching his head one day. He told me, you know, people seem to think that coming to church twice a month is committed. And and maybe that's just where you are with God. And I know all of us have different circumstances. We're in different places. Some of you are medical residents, and your residency doesn't really care about a Sabbath. you got to be there. You know, and some of you, you travel, you have various circumstances. But, but, and, and maybe for a lot of you, you're just, it's just where you are with God right now. And I want this to be a safe place for you to come a couple times a month while you wrestle with who Jesus is and what his claim is on your life and whether he really is the one that's going to satisfy you and give your life the meaning and the purpose and the hope and the future that you deserve. But, man... I want to see you come alive to God. I want to see you look at Jesus like, like, like Jesus says, a man who sees a field and he knows there's this buried treasure in that field and it captures his heart and he has to have it. And so he goes out and he sells everything he has. He gets rid of everything because it's all worthless compared to that precious treasure. And he sells everything he has and he buys that field because it's the one thing that he has to have in order to have happiness in this life. I want to see you come to Jesus the living stone. Where he's so beautiful to you that nothing's going to stop you from worshiping him in private and nothing's going to stop you from worshiping him in private. There was a time, not very long ago, friends, when, when Christians had to get up early in the morning before the sun rose and begin walking and they would have to walk hours into town in order to find their parish, in order to reach the church so that they could gather with other believers who have been touched and smitten by the love of Jesus. People who, who Jesus has come crashing into their life and everything has changed and they would gather and they would worship him all day. They would worship him in the morning and then they'd take some time in the afternoon to, to, to pray together and encourage one another and, and to rest and then they'd worship him again. Friends, a whole day, the, the Lord's day. And yet today I fear some of you can't even give him a couple mornings a month, let alone a whole day or four or five days in a month. Man. As you come to Jesus, he says, the living stone. You see, when you tell your kids, and I want to be sensitive here, but when you tell your kids that it's okay to skip church to go to a soccer game, understand that you are discipling your children in a certain viewpoint. What are you communicating to your kids? Because I guarantee they are taking notes and they are learning because you are discipling them. What you're really teaching your kids is that soccer is more important than Jesus. 
and that their career out on the field or wherever is what will make them whole and complete and bring them lasting satisfaction. And Jesus is always second. And they're going to bear that out in their life experience because they're going to learn that and they're going to take that theology into their marriage and they're going to take it into their second marriage. And they're going, to, they're going to take it and pour it down into their children, into your grandchildren, and teach them too that Jesus is always second to my career, to my personal advancement, whether it's on the soccer field or whether it's in the yoga studio or, or whether it's watching Netflix and my personal comfort. They're going to learn that Jesus is second to that. And then somewhere third and fourth come their spouse and after that their kids. And maybe that's what you want them to learn. That's your prerogative as a parent. But is that what you really believe is going to bring them life? Or is it Jesus? What do you believe is really going to nurture them? What do you you believe that, that is for them as newborn babes that they crave and will bring them life? Are you living out the welcome of Jesus or continually coming to him in private and in personal and corporate worship? Are you learning to bring everything to him who welcomes you with open arms? Friends, this means making sacrifices. It's right there at the end of chapter 5. Peter calls us a priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ? Are you offering him sacrifices? To sacrifice something means you're giving up something precious. You're giving up something valuable, something of great worth, and you're giving it up to God. You're saying, God, my career is not more important than your son, Jesus. And if it means I don't advance as far as other people in the office, I'm okay with that. I'm willing to make an offering of a spiritual sacrifice that is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus called this dying every day. It's what we read, what Riley read earlier in chapter 9 of the Gospel according to St. Luke. Whoever wants to be my disciple, Jesus said, must deny himself and take up his cross every single day and follow me. A cross I mean, this is a Roman context. A cross was a means of incredible suffering. Jesus is saying, if you're doing it right, if you're following me, if you're living out the welcome of Jesus, it is going to hurt. It's going to feel like suffering. In fact, it's going to feel like dying. Because a cross was a means of torture and, excommunic- and, and execution. It's like Jesus is saying, every single day you've got to get up and strap yourself into your electric chair and flip the switch and Feel its power and feel the pain. And it's going to feel like dying. To give up the life you thought you could have in order to have the life that Jesus has chosen for you. Cross means suffering. It means making spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God because of Jesus. Some of you know what it means to suffer. For some of you it means living leaving a relationship that's that's not pulling you toward Jesus it means walking away and the thought terrifies you because you you only see the loneliness and the pain that's going to fill all of that void and and it's going to come back and you're going to have to face all of that pain and it's going to feel like dying 
Some of you, you struggle with longings that you know are never going to be fulfilled in this life. Some of you right now are living a life permanently decoupled because you want to be faithful to your best friend Jesus. And that can feel like dying when you go through an entire week without being touched by another human being. For some of you, it's costing you a lot more than a tithe to follow Jesus. And others of you are in marriages that are really hard to keep pursuing your spouse when they're emotionally distant, to keep forgiving their sins against you when these things keep happening, to lean into conflicts that never seem to get resolved when all of your heart's desire is to push away from the conflict and to hope they go away, to stay faithful to your spouse, to stay committed when it seems so easy to just walk away. Some of you know what dying feels like. If you want to follow me, Jesus is saying, take up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow me. This means giving up control of your life. Think of all the tools that we rely on to get our way in this life, the way we spin things, the way we manipulate and influence. Peter says to hand over things like, quote, malice, and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. These are, are tools of self-advancement in any civilization. Padding your resume, eliminating the competition. And Jesus is saying, I want you to hand all of those tools over to me right now. To live out the welcome of Jesus means learning to bring everything to Jesus. That's what it is to live out the welcome of Jesus. And yet there's something else beyond that. To live out the welcome of Jesus, yes, it means learning to bring everything to Jesus, but it also means moving into Jesus' house. Peter says in verse 3, you've already tested the waters, you've already tasted and seen that it's good, but, but now he's telling you he wants you to go all in. You know, it's like you, you visited Jesus' house, you knocked on the door, you went in, it was a nice visit, Jesus was a very gracious host, but, but Jesus is saying, now I want you to move in permanently. You see, that's more than a taste. You've tasted that I'm good, now I want you to move in. And Jesus' house, understand, that's his community, that's his, his church. In verse 5, Peter writes, You also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. In verse 9, he calls his church his chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Do you, do you hear all of that? Every one of those, not individualistic, not finding your identity in what you do as a private individual, individual and not thinking of the church as a voluntary organization that you have chosen to join as a private individual. No, in all of these, there is a collective identity, not persons, but a people, not individuals, but a nation, not priests, but a priesthood. It means becoming something larger than yourself. Becoming the house that Jesus is building, putting aside our individualism, putting aside our personal preferences in order to do the hard work of being a single people. You tasted, you saw that it was good, now move in, 
Let your identity be defined not by what you accomplish in this life, but why Jesus accomplished in creating a people and purchasing them for himself to be his temple, his house, his priesthood, his family, his nation, his spiritual house. That's how discipleship happens in the church. First, in this church, usually people actually start by coming to a worship service. And and in that context of worshiping among us, something happens. The, the, The coin drops and you find Jesus to be beautiful, and you you experience and feel that welcome of Jesus, and you come to him. And then, having experienced and received that welcome of Jesus, you then dive in deep into Christian community. It could be a community group, it could be some other context, but where you are being known and knowing, and you are learning to live out that welcome of Jesus in community, because you can't learn it on your own. And then that third step in the process, you know, responding to the welcome of Jesus, experience that and then learning to live that out in intimate, deep, Christian, committed community. And then third, uh, learning to unleash that welcome in your city and in your world. That's how discipleship happens here. And that means becoming enmeshed with a new people, a new community, a gospel community. And that means letting your sisters and your brothers in. Because you're not going to learn to live out the welcome of Jesus in isolation. You weren't designed to. Jesus puts you in gospel community in order to learn to live this out. You know, there are two ways to do a community group. You can do a community group as sort of a social circle. You talk about the game, you hang out, you you have fun, and that's all nice, but you keep it shallow. And then there's another way to do community group. And that's where you actually let down your guard and let other people see you. And you're honest. And you're learning and you're talking through life experiences in the workplace, in your personal life, in your thought life, and in, in, in your relationships. You're, you're processing them with a group of other followers of Jesus who are learning the same things you're learning. You know, you think of that group of Christian guys who gather together to talk about the kind of stuff that guys never want to talk about. That's community. That's moving in. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. In his little book, From Brokenness to Community, Jean Vanier writes this. He says, there is a myth about community, just as there is a myth about marriage. The myth of marriage is that they lived happily ever after. The reality of marriage is that it's a place where a man and a woman are called to sacrifice their egos on the altar of their desire to create one body. Community, he writes, also means death to ego in order that people might grow to become one body truly belonging to each other, not in a closed way, but in a mysterious way where each one is growing in inner freedom. And without Jesus, this kind of of sacrificial commitment to gospel community is impossible because the thing that's going to keep you from it is your shame. And every one of us carries around our shame, things we don't want anybody to know about. Shame, you know, it's, it's different from guilt. Guilt relates to your actions. You feel guilty because of something you have done, but in that sense, those actions are sort of outside of yourself. Shame brings it all home. Shame is related to your person. Shame is that voice inside that says, I am naked and need to find a fig leaf. I need to hide. I need to cover up. I need to put on a mask. I can't let people know the real me. I can't let them know what's really going on because they'll reject me because I am defective. 
And in a fallen world where this world is not the way God intended it to be, we are all defective. And so we all experience this shame. To not experience shame, uh, you know, is a very dangerous place to be. And yet, what are you going to do with your shame? Because your shame can keep you from community. Your shame can keep you from moving into Jesus' house. Shame can keep you from digging down deep into committed gospel community where you can actually learn to walk out and to live out this welcome of Jesus coming to him continually again and again with his people. But what if, what if you just chose to actually tell your brothers and sisters in Jesus what's going on inside? What if you chose to tell them about your body issues? What if you let them in to your issue with your credit card debt? What if you let them in about your health problems and some of the ones that you maybe find more embarrassing? What if you, you let them know what really went through your life, what, what you actually experienced when you were a child? What if you let them in to your gambling addiction? What if you told them about the dark fog of depression that you, that, that you wade through every single day? What if you told them about your orientation? What if you told them about your prison record? What if you told them about your first marriage? What if you told them about that job you lost? What if you told them about your alcoholism? What if you told them about your struggle with being bipolar? You see, shame, it can keep you from community. And we're all broken, and that's why we're so freaking lonely. And yet, what if you went in deep? Maybe not all at once. Maybe not with everybody, but with somebody. What if you tested the waters of gospel community, tasted it to see if it really is good? Because what lies beyond that blushing face and the slump posture and the downcast head and the averted eyes, what lies beyond that initial experience of shame, if you're moving into Jesus' house, what lies beyond it is the acceptance and the welcome of Jesus that you're going to learn and experience from your brothers and your sisters in Jesus who will surround you with acceptance and love and affirmation and who will be able to actually put their finger on those shameful dark places that you've tried to hide and minister the gospel, the healing healing balm of grace to those very spots where you are so wounded and so afraid because you're moving into Jesus' house. You know, some of you, you've been hiding for a very, very long time. You've been, you, you, you know, you look, some of you look like you've been holding your breath in for years. And you found a community of broken sinners like yourself, damaged people who all have issues, but all who are loved by Jesus. And yet for you, it, it's almost like you can feel yourself holding in your breath. You get to exhale now. You get to be more than you've been in a very long time. You're safe here. You can exhale now. You found a community of grace. Don't let shame stop you from moving into Jesus' house because he's made a place here for you. Living out the welcome of Jesus, it means learning to bring everything to Jesus. And it means moving into his house despite your shame. How's that possible? Friends, when Jesus captures your heart, there is something aesthetic that happens inside of you. 
It's hard to explain, but something inside of you changes. You know, aesthetics is, is concerned with, with nature and with, with, with the nature and the appreciation of beauty, of longing. Do you see how the language of aesthetics is all over this letter that Peter wrote? It's all over this passage. In verse 3, he writes, You have tasted that the Lord is good. You say, Yeah, Greg, I got that. The goodness of God. I learned that as a child. I learned that in Sunday school. I learned that in catechism. I've taken classes on that. It is a propositional statement that God is in fact good and that there is no evil in him. He is morally pure. It's a theological proposition that I have learned, a cognitive belief within the noetic structure of my brain that the creator of the cosmos is good. I got it. But you don't get it. When you taste something, when you dip your spoon down into it and you bring it up to your mouth and you inhale through your nose to pick out the various aromas, the savory umami and the complexity of the curry, the savory richness reaching up into the pleasure centers of your brain and causing your desire to increase. And then you press the spoon against your lips and you let the deep warmth and richness roll across your tongue, the saltiness and the punch of spice, the acidity and the hint of sweetness underneath it, the aromas, they go further up the back of your throat and into your sinuses. And as you swallow that first spoonful, you put your spoon down and you look down at this bowl in front of you and you pause as you take it all in and you look up and you say what? You say that's good because you've tasted and you've seen that it's good. That is not a statement about the morality of the dish. It's a statement about the aesthetics of the dish, that it triggers something inside of you in the pleasure centers of your brain that you know that this is good. It speaks to your experience of something as good, as kind, as satisfying, as helpful to your soul. Friends, that is Jesus. Something aesthetic happens when Jesus captures your heart and, and you love him and you want to come to him again and again and again and nothing can stop you. Do you know how Jesus tastes in your soul? Is the aroma of grace pleasing to you? Is the smell and the taste of the gospel pleasant to your heart? Friends, Peter's heart was captivated by Jesus. He calls Jesus the cornerstone in this passage. But what kind of cornerstone? A precious cornerstone. That means valuable, highly esteemed, cherished. It's the language, again, of aesthetics. Is Jesus precious to you? Is he that beautiful to you? Is he precious to your soul? It's what Thomas Chalmers described as the expulsive power of a new affection that when you're dealing with an addiction or bondage or some sin pattern, uh, he explained that you, you can try to overcome it by looking at the sinfulness of sin, by looking at just how evil and bad the evil and the bad is. And yet he said that that's not really ultimately going to work because that alone will not give you the strength or power or motivation or enablement to rip it from your soul. 
But if you see something that is more beautiful than that thing you thought you had to have, something more precious, something more desirable, something that satisfies so much more deeply, a new affection, a new and greater love, that that has the power to actually enable you to do the hard work and the self-sacrifice and the pain and suffering and perseverance of actually expelling this thing from your life because it is the expulsive power of a new affection, the new affection, the new delight, the new love that is actually able to overcome. Oh, that our hearts would be captivated by a love of Jesus You say, Greg, I'm not there yet. And so what do I do? Look at Jesus. As you come to him, look at Jesus. What can melt an iced up heart? The Ten Commandments can't melt an iced up heart. The law of God can't do that. Only the gospel of God can do that. Only Jesus can melt an iced up heart. And that's because Jesus is the only one who can do this. Only Jesus covers all of your shame. Did you catch what Peter said in verse 6? It's possible to read a passage a hundred times and miss the obvious. It's what makes gospel community possible. It's what makes a church either healthy or unhealthy. It's what makes a small group either healthy or unhealthy. It's what makes a marriage either healthy or unhealthy. It's what makes your family either healthy or unhealthy. It's what makes a community safe and its absence makes a community unsafe. It's something that Jesus is promising you today through his word, speaking through his servant Peter and the inspiration of his spirit. He says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, in verse 6, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You'll never be put to shame. Going deep into gospel community, committing to be in worship every week, committing to be in a community group or a group of guys, to to open up your life, to share what's really going on, to expose the places that you're most ashamed of so that they can help you live out the welcome of Jesus by applying the healing balm of the grace of Jesus to those very places in your soul. What's it look like to not be put to shame? I'll tell you a true story. Shea Serrano had just taken the exit ramp near his home when his car sputtered and died, and and he was stuck there on the side of the road trying unsuccessfully to start the car. And finally he called a tow truck, and the wrecker promptly deposited both him and his car at his driveway at home. And, And so Serrano, he popped the hood, he fiddled with the wires, played around with the hoses, did everything in his less than vast auto repair knowledge he knew to do. And so finally he gave up and he called his dad. And his dad picked up the phone and he listened as he explained what happened. And his father just responded, you know, son, I'll come down there tomorrow after work. Now understand, Shay's father drove a city bus for 10 hours a day as his job. And he lived 215 miles away from his son. 
And so Shay's father the next day arrived on his doorstep three hours after he turned in his bus keys at the depot and he said hello and he hugged his son, told him he loved him, then walked back out to the driveway to have a look under the hood and took out his wrench and it took about 15 seconds. His father emerged from under the hood. He looked at his son. He returned his wrench to his toolbox and he walked past Shay to his own vehicle. Oh, what's wrong, Dad? Did you, did you not bring the right tools? No, we're done. Well, what's wrong with the car? It's out of gas, son. Now, Shay's dad then went inside and, and ate dinner with his son, and, and then late at night he headed home. Another 215 miles, 430 miles round trip after 10 hours of driving a bus. And Serrano says this. He says all through that meal, his dad never harassed him. He didn't berate him. He didn't do any of that while they were eating dinner. He didn't even bring up the embarrassing fact that he had run out of gas and didn't figure that out. As a matter of fact, nine years later, he explained that his father had still never mentioned the embarrassing incident even once because his dad was never going to put him to shame. Do you think your father in heaven is less loving than that? The one who trusts in him, Peter writes, will never be put to shame. This means that Jesus is calling your name right now if you are in him. And he is speaking to you and he is speaking to your soul. And he is saying right now, I am never going to expose you. I will never throw your sins in your face. I will never humiliate you. I'm going to clothe you when you're naked and I'm going to hide all your sin and I'm going to hide all your shame. In fact, I took your shame and hid it in myself upon my very soul. I carried your sin and I carried your shame and I dealt with it. I dealt with it on the cross. I dealt with it by letting it crush me so that it would never, ever crush you. And I did that because I love you. I see what you've gone through. I know what you've done. I know it all, but I'm filled with compassion for you, and so I rescue you, and my honor now clothes your nakedness. I will never put you to shame. Your career doesn't promise that. Your health doesn't promise that. Your relationships can't ever really promise that. Your soccer team can't promise that. Only Jesus can promise that you will never be put to shame. Jesus himself was rejected. He was shamed in order to welcome you in so that you could live out the welcome of Jesus in his community and his church. That is the gospel. Verse 4, Peter speaks of the living stone who was rejected by men. In verse 7, he speaks of the stone that the builders rejected. Peter is here talking about the shame of the cross which Jesus endured to gain the joy of having you in his household. That's what Jesus went through in order to capture your heart. He, the author of life, was rejected and died so that you could survive and thrive. He carried your shame to the cross so that you can live in gospel community unhindered by the crushing weight of the shame that would otherwise keep you hiding your entire life. He sacrificed himself for you. The Son of God sacrificed himself for you, rejected, so that you might have life. Think about that for a moment. 
the subway platform at the 137th Street station was dark, and it was crowded that chilly January 2nd of 2007 when 19-year-old Cameron Hollipeter climbed the steps down to the station. Cameron was from Littleton, Massachusetts. He was a freshman film student at the New York Film Academy. It was 12.45 p.m. that chilly afternoon when Cameron began to feel spacey and confused. You can almost imagine him walking into that station, tingling feeling throughout, a sensation of electricity. He knew what was coming, but it was too late. And awaiting passengers watched as Cameron fell to the ground and began shaking uncontrollably. Cameron had epilepsy, and he was having a grand mal seizure on the platform of the 137th Street City College Station in New York. Two women and a man stooped down onto the hard floor beside just to, to try to keep him safe and to try to keep the crowd at a distance. The the, the man who stepped down to help had two little girls with him, age four and six, and they watched as their father helped this white boy who was convulsing on the ground. That man who helped was a 50-year-old construction worker by the name of Wesley Otry. Otry and his girls and the two other women stayed with Cameron. One of them actually went then to fetch the station attendant. And as Cameron came out of the seizure, he insisted on standing up, and yet it was too soon. In a, in a split second, he was on his feet, and yet then a crowded station of onlookers watched in horror as the young film student staggered out of control, going around and around. His body then fell off and over the edge of the platform and down onto the tracks below. Massive passengers inched backward from the tracks as if some invisible force were pushing them backward. And Wesley Otry looked around and he took a deep breath. It was clear to him that no one was going to help this young man. He watched Cameron's body convulsing on the tracks below and he handed his two little girls to two women, the women who had been helping. Autry looked at the lights of the oncoming train that were already lighting up the tunnel. Its roar was already echoing through the station. You could already hear the brakes beginning to engage. You could already hear its horn sounding. And, and Wesley Autry jumped four feet down onto the tracks below. He tried at first to lift the young man, but his convulsion seemed designed to thwart every attempt. He tried then to drag him off the tracks, but, but as he looked backward, the train was already entering the station. He could, at that point, have leapt out and gone home with his two little girls. But instead, he rolled Cameron into the gap between the two metal rails of the track. It was maybe 18 inches deep, but Cameron was still shaking. He was still twitching. He was still in the midst of a seizure. It had come back on a second time. His arms and his legs are flailing about. He's still moving. And so Wesley Autry laid down on top of Cameron, using the weight of his body to, kin, to pin Cameron down to the ground. The train had engaged the brakes, but it couldn't stop in time. And so Autry's two daughters in the entire station screamed as five 370-ton subway cars plowed through 
the station. That's what it means to sacrifice yourself so that another can live. In something of a miracle, the horrified onlookers heard a voice from under the train. We're going to be okay. Could someone look after my little girls? Somehow both men survived. Wesley Autry was willing to give up everything, however, to rescue a white boy, a total stranger, a young film student who seemed destined to die. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. Only the train that was barreling toward you was a lot larger and a lot fiercer than anything the New York subway system can throw at you. It was the wrath of God against all that is evil and all that is shameful and all that is cruel and all that is unjust and all that is rebellious toward him. And yet in his infinite love, God sent down the only force strong enough to take the brunt of its force. He sent his son down onto the tracks to pin you down and to hold you safe. Only in Jesus' case, the tracks weren't deep enough for you both. And Jesus took the full brunt of that train and he absorbed all of its force into his body until it came to a grinding halt. And it is stopped forever by the love of Jesus who took into his body all of the wrath of God against our sin. He suffered the greatest rejection, not just the rejection by men, but even more so by his father. And he did it, friends, so that you would never have to. That is the cross on which our Savior died. And because of that, God has no more wrath left for you who have Christ Jesus. The train has been brought to a halt and it will never begin again. That's what Jesus did for you. Our condition was so bad that your best friend Jesus had to die. And yet his love was so great that he did so willingly. Friends, look at Jesus. You are so loved, so precious to God. The stone the builders rejected, Jesus, so that you might be welcomed in to live out that welcome of Jesus, bringing everything to Jesus, moving into his house, deep into his community, because he is never, ever going to put you to shame. Let's pray.